The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. David Vendrunen. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Well, our Thursday uh, faculty series is on uh, questions that Jesus asked. And uh, the question that uh, we'll be considering uh, this morning is uh, found in Matthew 9, verse 15. So this is a part of a really a very short uh, story. So I'll read that story, Matthew 9, uh, 14 through 17. Hear God's word. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into new wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This ends our reading of God's Word. Well, weddings uh, are interesting occasions, uh, and uh, there are many reasons why someone might, uh, might not be happy at a wedding. Uh, some people just don't really like weddings. I can neither confirm nor deny that I'm one of those people. Um, but sometimes uh, there are... Uh, Sometimes family and friends are not happy about a person's choice of a spouse. And uh, therefore, some people are not happy uh, when they're at weddings. Sometimes uh, there are people at weddings who wish that uh, they were the ones marrying the bride or the groom. And so they're secretly not, or maybe not so secretly, very happy uh, when they're at a wedding. Uh, But it's generally poor taste. Uh, to act unhappy, act like you're uh, sorrowing uh, when you're at a wedding. It's probably better either not to go at all or to fake it while you're... Usually you shouldn't fake things in life, but there are, this is probably a time you'd rather fake it than act like you're unhappy when you're at the wedding. If you're going to go, you should probably rejoice. And Jesus Uh, is asked a question here. So Jesus asks a question in response to a question. Uh, The question uh, is about fasting. Why don't don't your disciples fast? And Jesus responds with a question, uh, how can the guests at a wedding mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Jesus is asked about fasting, and he associates that with Morning. Now, the main point uh, I might suggest is not to teach about fasting per se, although there are implications for fasting to be sure, but the bigger point 
the bigger theological point, the bigger moral point, uh, is about the joy that ought to characterize the Christian life. Uh, and I hope we can uh, see that as we spend a few minutes thinking about Jesus' question uh, here in context. Before thinking about Jesus' question in a little more detail, it's good if we uh, consider the question that he has asked, which precipitates uh, his, his answering a question with a question. Uh, it's the disciples of John that come to him with a question. Uh, and uh, I think we can uh, assume that this question was not asked with ill intent. Sometimes, a number of times in the Gospels, people ask Jesus questions and they're trying to trap him, they're trying to make him look bad. Uh, these are the disciples of John, so these are, these are good guys, I think we can assume. And they're not asking him because they're trying to trap him. Uh, and we can recognize this is actually a good question. Why don't they fast? It's a question that made good sense in an Old Covenant context. So I'll come back to that in a moment, but we might also recognize that in the uh, relatively short story that comes just before the story we just read, uh, Jesus is also asked a question. This time it's by the Pharisees, which makes us suspicious. But the Pharisees also asked him a pretty good question. Uh, Actually, they asked the disciples a question, but Jesus answers, uh, so we'll kind of take it as a question to Jesus. Uh, the, the Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples, why do, does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And that actually is also a very good question. Maybe the Pharisees, they may have had bad intentions in asking it, but it's a good question anyway. Because from Old Covenant perspective, it's not in, at, clear at all that Jesus should be eating with tax collectors and sinners. Because old covenant saints under the law of Moses were to be very concerned about purity. Uh, they did not want to become unclean by having fellowship with those who were careless about the law of Moses, uh, who would uh, make them unclean and exclude them from the worship of God, at least for a time. And so it was a good question. Why would Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? And uh, I know I need to avoid the temptation to start talking about this other text when I should be talking about this next one. But it's really part of the same, part of the same story that's unfolding. And we recognize that uh, now that Jesus has come, there are going to be some different characteristics of this new covenant community. And it's not going to be a community uh, that has this focus upon maintaining ceremonial purity uh, and therefore must be very careful ordinarily to avoid close fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. The New Covenant community, now that Jesus has come, is going to be one that goes out and seeks fellowship with tax collectors and sinners and seeks to call in tax collectors and sinners, repentant tax collectors and sinners. But that is exactly what seems to be going on. Tax collectors and sinners are looking to Jesus and they are finding him a great physician. Jesus calls, uh, 
portrays himself as a great physician who has come uh, to heal the sick. Uh, he appeals uh, to uh, Hosea 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Uh, no coincidence there. Hosea 6 begins uh, with um, uh, an, uh, an appeal to Israel to return, to repent, because God has struck them down, but he is going to heal them. Jesus, well, God had held out the hope that he would, he would heal his people, and Jesus has come to be that healer, to be that physician. And coming back to our, uh, our text, the question, as I indicated earlier, makes sense from an Old Covenant perspective, the question of the disciples of John. Uh, why do we in the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Now, there was only one day of the year that Israelites were required to fast under the Mosaic Law, uh, on the Day of Atonement. Uh, at the same time, there's a lot of fasting uh, under the Old Covenant. And that's easy to understand when we recognize that fasting uh, was uh, something that uh, you do, I mean, not to oversimplify things, uh, but certainly fasting in many, many contexts, it was appropriate at times when the people were, were under threat of God's judgment, uh, when they were grieving, when they were mourning, when they were repenting from their sin. Uh, and, well, the story of the Old Testament provides plenty of occasions for such things. So, uh, just to give you an example, in Joel chapter 2, verse 12, uh, we read this, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. You see, this is why Jesus associates fasting with mourning. Uh, you didn't fast when you were celebrating. Uh, you didn't fast when things were good. Uh, you didn't fast um, when you felt everything was right with God. You fasted when you felt the threat of God's judgment, when you needed to repent, when you needed to tear your clothes and weep uh, before the Lord. And, of course, there's many occasions for rejoicing under the Old Covenant as well, ideally at least, and we can see in many psalms, like we just sang a few minutes ago, Psalm 100, which calls us to enter God's presence with joy. And yet, because of the people's constant sin under the Old Covenant, there were so, much, so many occasions uh, for fasting. Uh, and disciples of John fasted. You think about John's ministry. I mean, you listen to John's preaching all day? I mean, he preached... He preached judgment, preached repentance. Uh, you'd probably be fasting a lot, too. You, you listen to John preach all day, you probably don't feel like having a celebratory dinner. You probably felt like fasting. And yet they come to Jesus and they see his disciples. They're not fasting. Well, why is that? Well, the Messiah has come. As the previous text makes clear, he is the one who has come to heal and here he portrays himself as the bridegroom. He is the Messiah, the bridegroom of his people, who has come to bring salvation to his people, to lift the cloud of judgment 
from those who turn to him. And if the Messiah is here, if the bridegroom is present, if you are eating in his presence, it's not a time for fasting, it's a time for feasting, it's a time for joy. The Messiah has come, and that is good news. It makes you want to feast, not want to fast. Now, there is a big question that arises in this text, of course, because in the very same verse, verse 15, right after he asks this question, Jesus says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Uh, so the disciples were not fasting because Jesus was there with them, and you don't fast when you're in Jesus' presence, when you're in Jesus' gracious, favorable presence. But there's a time coming when they will fast again. So what time is this? And at least, uh, it must be the days uh, when Jesus was taken away by death, when he was crucified, um, before he was raised up. Uh, we know that uh, Jesus would explain, say, in, um, in, in the upper room discourse in John, how how the disciples would be grieved uh, when uh, he was put to death. And uh, so certainly that must be the case. He must be at least talking about that. Undoubtedly, the disciples didn't feel like fe uh, feasting. Feasting and fasting are just one letter apart. You might have noticed. You probably thought about this. Right? Uh, they probably didn't feast on that Saturday between death and resurrection. That would have been a time for fasting, if ever there was one. And yet we also wonder, is it talking about our present day? Right? Has the bridegroom been taken from us so that now is the time for us uh, to mourn, uh, to fast? And uh, the Gospel of Matthew doesn't give us the impression that that's the case. Insofar as the Gospel of Matthew prepares us for our present day, the time between resurrection and second coming, the most fundamental thing it teaches us is that Jesus is with us. And so you might think of um, Matthew 18, even when it's telling us that we, uh, may, we will have to exercise church discipline in the case of sin, of unrepentant sin. And Jesus says, whenever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Jesus is among us when we gather to exercise the keys of the kingdom. And you might remember, of course you remember how Matthew ends with the Great Commission the very last thing that Jesus says to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's about to ascend to heaven, but he says, I am with you. Yes, he's absent in a sense, and we long for that day when we see him face to face. But fundamentally, in an even more important sense, he is with us now. He is with us by his spirit. He is with us by his means of grace. And so, if we answer this question that we have put to this text in Matthew, is now the time that the bridegroom is absent and 
Now we must mourn again. Matthew answers, no. The bridegroom is with us. And that is a way that we are instructed that this is a time of joy. The Christian life is one that is to be marked by a fundamental joy, knowing that our Messiah has come and he has finished his work and he is with us now, even in his absence. And you might say, well, the Christian life is pretty hard, isn't it? A lot of suffering, a lot of trials, a lot of temptations. And the answer is, that is absolutely the case. And Matthew prepares us for that as well. I mean, we find in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus saying, if anyone wants to come after me, he must take up his cross and deny himself. Deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. There's a lot about the suffering to come in the Gospel of Matthew. And yet, the New Testament makes very clear to us that suffering and joy are not alternatives. The Christian life is to be marked by suffering and joy simultaneously. And it's not even that we are to rejoice in spite of our sufferings. That really wouldn't be theologically accurate. We are called to rejoice in our sufferings, that in some sense, even our sufferings are things that bring forth joy for us in our Christian life. And uh, a number of texts are very relevant on this point. I would simply note uh, Romans 5, 1 through 5, which I will read and I will let the text speak for itself rather than comment on it. Paul says, Romans 5, 1 through 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I don't suggest that's easy, and I don't. Um, I don't claim to have mastered rejoicing in the midst of sufferings or even in the midst of being busy when you're distracted by all sorts of things. This is, this is a difficult call, uh, yet one that we are all called to. And perhaps one thing to keep in mind is uh, you're really not wedding guests. You're not guests at the wedding. What we are is actually the bride at the wedding. Christ has come and finished his work. And remember how Paul describes the atoning work of Christ in Ephesians 5. He died for us as his bride in order to purify us as a pure, spotless, radiant bride for him. And if it's poor taste for the guests at the wedding to be mourning, it's a lot worse when the bride looks really unhappy at the wedding. Right, something probably wrong. We are, we are the bride. And if we have been made Christ's bride, then who are we to be mourning in our Christian life? Well, uh, 
It's hard not to, not to conclude without making one very brief reference to fasting. Let me suggest that uh, what this text communicates to us uh, explains why uh, it encourages us as Christians not to be marked by fasting, not to be characterized as a fasting people. We Christians do not, I would say we should not, ordinarily fast. There may be occasions when it's appropriate. Uh, we find a couple of examples in the book of Acts on solemn occasions when, uh, when the church fasts. But we are never once commanded to fast in the New Testament. It is not something that characterizes us as a new covenant community because we are not characterized as a mourning community, as a community that lies under God's judgment. But we have been characterized by the New Testament as a feasting community. We have been given the table of the Lord that we may partake in what we ought to partake in regularly, eating together in, in anticipation of that eschatological wedding banquet in which we will have a place, in which we will sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, enjoying forever our great privilege of being the bride of the great bridegroom. Let's pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that in the fullness of time he came. He came as the great physician who would do what you promised through Hosea long ago, to heal your broken, sinful, cursed people. And we thank you, O Lord, that he came as the great bridegroom. Thank you that he came uh, to uh, marry his sinful people, to take away mourning and to anoint them with the oil of joy. And we do pray, O Lord, that even as we uh, live here and now, when we do not get to see our Savior face to face, uh, thank you that uh, still we may claim rightly to be the bride of Christ, and we have already begun to enjoy so many blessings having that status. Thank you for the table of the Lord in which we might eat and drink in his presence and rejoice as those who are not fundamentally a fasting people. We pray, O oh Lord, that even in the midst of many sufferings in this life, that you would give us that joy. It is not by our own strength, by our own power, that we can rejoice when so many burdens of this life weigh upon us day by day. But we know that by your spirit, uh, we who are justified have peace with you and may approach your throne and that you work in us by your spirit that true joy, that true delight in the things of our Savior. Work that in us, we pray, in our Savior's name. Amen.
Copyright 2022, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.